Welcome to The Way We Work podcast. I'm Ben Weber, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Humanize and your host for today. I've also got with me a Professor Ifoma Junwa from Cornell University's Industrial and Labor Relations School and Cornell Law School. She's also a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center over at Harvard University. And her book, The Quantified Worker, will be published with the Cambridge University Press in 2019. So we're all uh, looking forward to that. We've got her here in Boston, so thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, again, today we're going to talk about um, really how do we protect privacy in general, what, what, what even privacy means today and how people think about it. So maybe just to start off, you want to talk about the work that you do currently and how you got into uh, to what you do. Uh, yes. Um, so currently, I do a lot of work looking at algorithms in the workplace. Um, so that could be anything from hiring algorithms to productivity applications. Um, so that's a big part of what I do. And the focus is on looking at privacy issues and also issues of inequality. Um, so I uh, got my PhD from Columbia University, um, and I wasn't actually in tech at that time. Um, so when I was doing my PhD, I was looking at um, reentry of the formerly incarcerated. So you know, as you might know, you know, mass incarceration is a problem for the United States. Um, and one I felt on asked question was even if. Um, we did away with mass incarceration, all the laws that allow for mass incarceration. What do you do with all the people who have been to prison, some for quite extended periods of time? How do you reintegrate them into the workplace? So I did my dissertation on that. Um, and my questions were definitely focused on how organizations could actually be intermediaries to help reenter uh, formerly incarcerated people. Um, but as I was doing that, I started noticing that a lot of them complained about computers, uh, but not in the way you would imagine. So I thought, you know, when I heard the complaints, I thought, oh, they're saying they don't know how to use computers. You know, they're lacking in computer skills. But no. So what they were actually saying was that um, they felt that work has become so quantified in that everything is very computerized, very, you know, um, datafied, for lack of a better word, um, particularly in the hiring process. So they felt that, you know, in the past, you know, even if you had a record, you could maybe appeal to the manager at the store, show up, you know, present yourself as someone who has been rehabilitated, you know, look them in the eye, shake them, you know, give a, give a firm handshake. And now this was no longer the case because you have to put in your resume online. And once you check the box saying you have a criminal record, your resume basically disappears and is never seen by a human. So they felt that there was now this lack of a human factor um, in most of the workplace. Um, and so that got me to really interested in looking into tech, uh, particularly in the workplace. So, you know, as a, as a tech company, right, like I want to have Basically, they want our workforce to be representative of right. the wider world, right? And there's unfortunately a lot of people in the U.S. who are, um, you know, who have been incarcerated, right? And, you know, at the same time for, for like a job opening, you get like 150 yeah. plus you know, resumes. And so how would you say, especially if we want to you know, recruit people from that population, right. um, how, would you, how would you do that effectively? So um, first is actually thinking through, because I assume, you know, getting that many applications, you use an automated hiring system 
to at least sort your resumes? We sort it. We don't automatically screen. Okay. We do sort. Okay. So, so a lot of people do automatically screen, but even sorting, you know, there are things you can think about in terms of the design process for your algorithm. So are you sorting based on gaps in employment? Well, that can be a factor for someone who's been formerly incarcerated. They will have gaps. So if you're like eliminating those resumes, then you would be eliminating a lot of formerly incarcerated people. But even more than that, you'd be eliminating some veterans. You'd be eliminating, you know, people who stayed home to raise your children. You know, so just mindful, being mindful of things like that um, in terms of how you're sorting the resumes. Um, another way is working with organizations who are trying to re-enter formerly incarcerated people um, and actively advertising with them um, in terms of trying to find people that have the skills that you need. And do, you, then, do you know a few of those organizations? Yeah, there, there's yeah. so many. <laughs> there's, yeah. Like, um, yeah, in Boston, in New York, in everywhere, in any major city, you will find several of those. Um, and so, then I, so Google those, everybody. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, but the third thing is actually thinking through um, what your qualifications criteria are. Um, so an issue these days is that a lot of the skills that technology, uh, tech companies need are not necessarily skills that have already been acquired by most of the population. Um, so if you're being very stringent about people already having X number of years of experience, you might lose people who have the aptitude for the skills that you need, but who might just need some extra training. Um, and especially, actually, research has shown that formerly incarcerated people are very loyal employees um, and are very willing to really do any kind of training to get the job. Um, you know, Diva Pager um, is one researcher who has done a lot of work looking at whether formerly incarcerated people are more dangerous than the regular population. And she did research with the U.S. military, for example, um, which hires a lot of formerly incarcerated people and found that there wasn't actually a higher risk hiring a formerly incarcerated person than a regular person um, because a lot of them are very eager to work and know that this is, you know, they have limited chances to work. So going from that, you know, then obviously your current work has to deal a lot more with data privacy and in particular uh, privacy within the workplace. And, and obviously this is something that's a very um, timely topic because all of us have been bombarded recently with the uh, GDPR emails and what does exactly that mean. Um, but I think also a lot of people think about that typically in a consumer setting, right? How does that apply to me as a customer of Company X? Um, and that's very different than if I'm an employee of Company X because the power dynamic is very different, right? Like if I don't want to drink Coca-Cola, I could stop, right? But if I work for a company and they control my livelihood, and then somebody says, I want to collect this data about you, it's very different. Right? So um, again, maybe if you wanted to um, just lead off and, and talk about um, you know, really uh, from, from your perspective, what, uh, you know, if I think about at, at a consumer level, right, what is personal data and what is sensitive about that, um, and then also think about that from a company level too. Uh, thank you very much, Ben. Um, 
I mean, let me just start off by saying that, you know, within the U.S. concept, um, uh, context, uh, privacy can be quite a thorny issue, yeah. um, particularly really in just how we conceptualize it. Um, in other contexts, you know, for example, the European context, privacy is considered a human right, um, whereas in the American um, uh, context, it's closer to a property right, and even then it's still not even well established that it, it is any kind of right. Um, so it's not enshrined in the Constitution, for example, as a right. Um, so that makes it kind of a nebulous uh, concept to really pin down in the American concept, context. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times, um, whether in the employee context or the consumer context, there's a feeling of what's the harm, right? Why not collect this data, which could be used for marketing, which could be used for all these other business uh, relevant purposes. And the question is, what's the harm to the person, you know, from whom the data is being collected? And privacy scholars like myself um, have really faced that question for many, many years. Um, and we feel somewhat vindicated, um, and maybe in a perverse way, by the Cambridge Analytica scandal, because then we can actually say, that's the harm, right? Um, there are harms to collecting, privacy, uh, collecting um, private information um, in a way that's not protective um, of the people from whom you're collecting it from. And in the employee context, you know, as you rightfully mentioned, because of the way the employee-employer relationship is structured in the U.S., you know, with at-will employment laws, meaning you can be fired really for any reason, uh, just cause really, um, that makes it uh, a huge power imbalance. Um, and that really questions or, you know, brings into question any kind of consent. Um, uh, or voluntariness when it comes to collection of data from employees. Um, your other question is also a thorny one, which is what is then actually uh, <laughs> uh, sensitive data? What, it, what should be considered, um, you know, I guess personal information that should be protected? And I think that's still evolving, right? Um, we didn't used to think um, that steps you took per day was sensitive information. But then when it's discovered that maybe insurance companies might use that to calculate your insurance rates or uh, even life insurance companies might use that to decide whether to give you life insurance or not, then it becomes more sensitive data than previously thought. Um, so, you know, these are still ever-evolving ever questions, and I think with the more technological advances that we make, um, particularly in fitness and also particularly in how we can collect in a more granular way uh, information from employees, the more that, you know, the answer to that question is going to change of what is sensitive data. I mean, absolutely. And I think, and again, I would be remiss in not mentioning your Washington Post article, which everybody should go read, um, where you talk about data privacy and things like that. Um, but I, I do think that, I mean, your points were, were spot on and that, especially around the kind of data that can be collected, especially at an individual level. Right? And I would it'd be interested actually in your thought on this. So um, a lot of times companies think that certain data is anonymous, but it's not. Um, there's a great um, paper actually by one of my uh, former colleagues from MIT, um, Yves Alexandre de Montjoy, who's uh, now at um, was University College in London, um, who wrote, uh, basically what he did is he took cell phone data and 
the question was how granular do you need the location data to be to recognize a single person? And, you know, a lot of times cell phone companies have sold, for example, um, location data at the cell tower level, which is a couple hundred meters. So seems, without names, so you say, okay, that seems anonymous. But of course it turns out that I only need a one kilometer radius at four periods of time to know who you are because we're just very unique. And I think, again, behavioral data is extremely unique. And I think that there's a big difference, first of all, between just taking away names and saying that's anonymous, but also from aggregation, right? Because averages are provably anonymous. Mm -hmm. And I I would argue, and this is the stance, obviously, that we take at Humanize, so I am biased here, but I do think we've thought about this. Um, But it's, it's that there are real needs to know things at an aggregate level, right? You know, um, does management ever talk to the engineering team? Like that really matters. Like what what percent of the, you know, employees are working more than 70 hours a week? Like that matters. Um, You don't really have a good business case for knowing, you know, what is Anne doing at 2.30 on Tuesday? Who cares, right? Like it doesn't matter. Any benefit you get out of that would, would again just be completely defeated by the negative reaction that people would legitimately have. And this is this is not getting into the legal questions, right? right? Um, but to your point, it just seems like companies are. I, I don't. I think you know maybe from from my perspective, I think uh, mostly unintentionally, they just don't understand what can be done with this data, right? and so they feel like taking rudimentary steps to you know things like removing names. Um, they feel like that's enough. Um, and I guess I would sort of ask, you know, have you, have you seen, or do you see any really effective way just beyond, you know, more and more education, um, you know, for companies to, you know, really get it. Um, or, and I guess the other thing I would ask is if you disagree with any of the things I just said. Um, well, I think you, you said a lot there, um, which is that, and I think an important one is that, you know, businesses do have a need for data. Right, you know, a lot of the data they're, they're collecting is for legitimate business purposes, um, and that we can't overlook that, and we can't expect businesses to sort of fly blind, right, without having the data to really inform their operations. So the you know employers have a very legitimate interest in collecting data, particularly on employees. Um, the question is, of course, the slippery slope, you know, where data that's collected for one purpose which is a perfectly legitimate purpose, could then be repurposed for something else that's more sinister or nefarious, or even inadvertently um, privacy in, in, you know, invasive. So that's, you know, there's always that slippery slope to kind of avoid. And, you know, one, one example of this was the, the Zora app that was used in, in a case that ended up in California court you know, where the woman was a mid-level exec and she was um, obliged to download the Zara app on her phone because then that would track her movement to the various branches that she had to visit. And this obviously was a very legitimate business purposes purpose. It was important to know where she was at a given point, um, you know, during her workday. Um, but on the other hand, you know, she found that her manager was actually tracking her on her off day. Uh, meaning that even when she thought the app was turned off, it wasn't, and her manager could actually like view her movements in her own personal hours off hours. So that that was very you know 
privacy invasive. Um, but that also actually raises a second point, which is design. Um, so design is extremely, extremely important for privacy conservation. Um, and that's really what you're getting at, which is how, for example, do you anonymize data? Are there design measures that can be taken where you can collect data for a useful purpose in a way that's already anonymized? So you don't even have to worry about trying to anonymize it and prevent um, you know, privacy invasions that's already built in to the design. Um, so I think that's a really important um, issue going forward you know, for many companies to think about in terms of who they're partnering with and you know, when they're looking for data collection. And I think that the Zora app is a perfect point because the legitimate business case is the question that they want to answer is, is a manager visiting all their branches? That's the question. You don't need to know where they are at every second to answer that question. You basically need a yes or no. Right. right? And that's all you need. Right. Right. And that's fine. And, and I think most people say, okay, getting a yes or no is type answer. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Right. But again, it gets to design to your, to your point. Right. Um, you know, and I guess, can you think of, you know, examples of companies that have um, really built in, um, say, privacy first, or at least some of those um, really best practices and um, been very successful? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I'm still looking for those companies. Um, yeah, to be honest, I feel like I'm still looking for those companies. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, the GDPR is just recently became law. So people haven't really been obliged, right, to really contemplate these privacy protectionist measures. Um, so I think that's going to change. Um, now that the GDPR is law, um, that's very much going to revolutionize the way we think about privacy and data collection. And I guess the question is, because one of the things that I've thought about with regards to GDPR, it, it, there's sort of, and you can also obviously correct me on this, but it, it seems to be the application to, for example, uh, the workplace in particular is not that explicit. And that it doesn't deal with a lot of the issues that will come up in workplaces around data collection. Mm -hmm. And so, again, my you know, opinion on this, our stance on it, has really been that they really, we really do need to go beyond that when it comes right. to the workplace. Like, right. just the, the stakes are so much higher. Um, and, and then, and I guess the question is, you know, in, you know, especially in the, um, the legal community around this, um, have there been discussions around, um, first of all, how to do that? Um, is that a matter of, uh, more regulation, which again, I think it is, mm -hmm. um, you know, or are there other ways to, um, change, you know, GDPR specifically, but then obviously introduce things in the U S, um, that would then, you know, really compel, um, companies to do the right thing. That's a great question. Um, and, and I, I definitely think that limitation of the GDPR is because of the context in which it was derived, which is the European context, where they already have all these employee protection laws in place. So they didn't really need to add that to the GDPR. They were really ad addressing the consumer protection uh, for, for data collection. Um, so of course, that would fall short in our context where we don't already have this employee protection laws in terms of data collection. Um, so I do agree with you. Um, I've written um, a lot of your articles on this. We do need greater protections um, in, in the form of regulations for workers in the workplace. 
Um, and I think it needs to be targeted. So for me, perhaps the most sensitive uh, employee data is health data. Um, and you know, the GDPR doesn't necessarily address that explicitly. Um, and, and in the US context, you know, it's, it's a very murky area um, to help data, particularly with introduction of wellness programs. Um, and there's really proliferation in the workplace um, that really can leave worker health data very vulnerable, um, not just to the employer, but to these third party vendors who sell it because there's no law against selling that information. Um, so I really think there are greater regulations needed um, to protect employee health data, but then also um, to protect employee data in regards to privacy off the job. Like for example, you know, going back to the Zara app, you're very correct in saying they don't necessarily need to track that exec every single minute of the day, even while she's working. They just need to know, did you visit the branches? And that could be a simple like check-in type technology, not necessarily a tracking technology that, you know, they oblige her to um, undertake. Um, so I, I do think greater regulations would address that, for example, and would really kind of, I don't know, uh, compel employers to really think through their data collection measures. The problem is that really no one knows what is really like the right way to do things. Right? Something like, well, we have a certain stance, and it's a question, though, is that the right way to do things? Right. And in some ways, it's just been interesting in our experience, it's been easier for us to roll out in the EU. Because what it means is, so sure, there are like additional formal hoops that you have to go through. Right. Um, but once you're through them, and then you're in front of an employee, and you say, here's what we're doing, they know what the rules are. Right. And so if you've cleared, you know, if legal has said it's okay, if InfoSec said okay, then I know if you do any of these things, I can suit you, you're done, right? right? Um, whereas in the US, you don't have that, right? So to your point, I can track where you are every second of every day, and I can give all that information to employer. Again, that's not what we do, but it, it's not hard to do technologically, right? right. The hard thing right. is deriving insight from that. And, and I think that, you know, really, and I would say, I think there is, obviously, a lot of value in the behavioral data, right? And not just inten things like intentional check-ins. There is value in the, you know, intentional uh, surveys or, uh, you know, observations. Um, but the behavioral data is so rich. But to your point, um, if you do that in the wrong way, and there are many ways you can do that in the wrong mm -hmm. way, right, then very bad things can happen. Right. Not that they do frequently, but they can, like like the example with Zora, right? And so really ensuring that, I think particularly on the behavioral data side, that that's really measured, uh, it's really uh, regulated. And, and I think to your point, particularly on the health side, um, is important. But, I, but one other thing I guess I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about, because... There are things that we don't think of as health data. You steps an example, yeah. but it still relates to things, right? Yeah. But I could also make the argument, I mean, again, a great paper at the University of Oxford that I can, for example, um, detect the early onset of Parkinson's by looking at changes in the way you speak, right. Right? right? So, right, again, is your tone of voice data, is that health data? Eh. Yeah. Right. Um, but, so I guess... I feel like you can't, if you say that we should regulate health data in this way, you know, it's got to be aggregate or all these, you know, um, 
I, my argument would be that that should probably apply to all kinds of behavioral data. And I'm curious about your, yeah. your thoughts on that. Um, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I've, I've also been thinking this myself, like, you know, how all data can really be correlated with, you know, health and health outcomes. Um, because it's not even just, um, it's not even just behavioral, it's, it's also like search data, for example, like what you Google, um, there's been studies showing it correlates to, you know, mental health, for example. Um, so a lot of things can be really repurposed as health data or can point to health issues, maybe not present, but maybe even future. Um, so you're right, it then becomes problematic to disentangle what is health data and what is not health data. And so, yeah, maybe I need to revise my opinion that health data should be more stringently regulated than other types of data because then that creates this false dichotomy that perhaps doesn't really exist anymore. The more advanced we get technologically. There we are, so we've made some progress on yes. that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's... I mean, it's interesting when you think about that because you, when you think of, in, in, you know, employee data collection, there are all these different players. Again, similar to the consumer space, but there's there's more levels in terms of you have, um, you know, a technology provider who provides the actual data collection. Um, you have an employer itself. You have the government. Um, in the U.S. is basically not involved at this point. Um, and you also have the employee. Um, and, you know, where where would you put, you know, the responsibility in terms of managing that? Um, and it's not necessarily yeah. just in one, <laughs> you pick one of those, but, right. uh, yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's, mo it's at more than one point, right? Mm -hmm. So, obviously, the government has the responsibility to create the regulations, mm -hmm. um, and because, as you mentioned, in the absence of regulations, then people don't know what the standards are. Employers can't know what the standards are to even um, hew to them. So once the government creates the regulations, then obviously the employers then have a responsibility to um, stand by those regulations and conform. Um, so I, I think it's a multi-step process. And I guess a... The typical pushback that I hear on that, um, which I don't agree with, but you probably hear this as well, you know, well, this technology is so new, regulation yeah. is just going to slow down innovation. So um, yeah. what, what do you say to, to that? It's a very typical <laughs> rhetoric. It, it um, and, and what I say to that is it hasn't hurt Europe to have stronger regulations. So if we need a test case, let's look at Europe. I don't think the, I think it. the pushback on that would be, again, and I'm... I'm this is, I don't agree with this, but I'm saying what would they say? Well, Google isn't from Europe. Facebook isn't from Europe. They weren't developed there, and they weren't developed there because right. they have this regulation. So anyway, I'll, that's yeah. part of the argument. Yeah, that is part of the yeah. argument. But but then the other side is, well, do we like how Facebook is? Do we like how Google is? Are there things we wish we could change about Facebook? Are there things we wish we could change about Google? Yes. Yeah. You know, they are extremely innovative, and we love the innovation. But it's also innovation that's come at a price. Um, and some would say, in the case of Facebook particularly, too big of a price. I mean, when you give a company essentially the power to change a political system, I mean, is the innovation worth it at that point? 
I mean, my, my comeback to that is always, well, before the technology exists, you can't write the regulation because you just, you don't even know this right. is possible. Right. Once it exists, you need to start thinking about it. Right. Right? When is the exact right time to pull the trigger on regulation? That is, it is certainly an open question. Right? Right. It's pretty clear that in the case of consumer tracking technology, that is so well understood now, we've had decades of that, that to say that, you know, that's not something that we would slow down innovation on that is sort of ridiculous because that, that's, that's there. Right. I would argue, though, that if you look at people analytics space, um, you know, the R space, but, but also just more broadly data collection and work, that, yes, we're a couple of years into that. But we broadly understand the contours of the technology. Right. What are the things that are actually valuable, that companies have a legitimate need, and what are they not? Right. And, you know, what I would say is any regulation that is ever going to be written about anything is never going to be perfect. So are there going to be some areas that it gets wrong? Absolutely. Right. You know, but, and those, those are things that should be corrected. Right. Um, but it, I think that for the long-term health of every industry, right, regulation is incredibly important and incredibly effective. Right? I could even argue that the regulation you see around GDPR, you know, there might be temporary um, hits to you know, the bottom line for Google and Facebook. Sure. But if you say, you know, long term, you're actually going to be more sustainable. You're right. going to exist longer right. and you're going to be more profitable because you know the rules of the role. We're not going to be suing you for all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a similar way for, you know, if I look within the workplace, if I think about our industry, that there's friction when we even sell today because people don't know the rules of the world. Hey, well, I'm going to get sued for this. Um at the same time, you can just pretty much statistically guarantee that at some point, someone is going to do something wrong, right. really wrong with this kind of data. Right. Zora example is one that has a relatively small, isolated you know, incident. There very well could be bigger ones. Right. Right. And rather than wait for those things to happen, like we saw with Cambridge Analytica, right? right? Is it good to write regulation reactive to a single event? No, it's clearly overdue. Right. Right. Right? And so I think in the case of our industry, it really would behoove everybody to say, you know what? Let's do this thing right. Let's think this through. And again, this is not where it's been interesting because I'm sort of curious on your thoughts on this too, because it's something where I really do want regulation around the space. But I'm also aware that first of all, it can seem self-serving, right? Because like I want regulation, like, and I think that what we do is the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. So if regulation comes out like that, it works well for me. Um, But it is something I want to support. And I'm just really, like, again, I, I haven't, I, I'm curious if you've seen companies do that well. You know, is it just you make public statements, but that you don't, um, like you wouldn't give money to EFF or something because right. then there's a conflict of interest. Right. I'm just curious, like, what your thoughts on that are. Um, so I would say two things. I would say, you know, I think a lot of companies have put in a bind where they feel exactly what you're saying, which is there's no regulation. If I try to create my product in a way that's more protective than my that my competitors, then I'm going to be at a disadvantage because not everyone else will hew to the same standard, right? Because there's no, not this one standard for everyone. I guess I like personally, I'm less worried about that. Like we at this point in our industry, we're we're more protective of privacy than everybody. Like GDPR didn't change how we deal with data, which it did for like everybody else, right? Um, but I'm concerned that if I say, okay, the way we do things, like that's how it should be regulated in the U.S., 
which I believe, right? But again, I'm not the sole arbiter of truth, obviously. Like, there are people could have different opinions around stuff that should be and uh, should be collected. Um, I'm just sort of curious, like how, like, how can companies, whether it's employers, whether it's technology providers, support regulation in an above-board way mm-hmm. um, so that there's not the appearance of influence, right? Like, if I, you know... I see what, you see what I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, essentially, you want to avoid the appearance of regulatory capture. Like, you have... Mm-hmm. Are I didn't know that word. Now I know that word. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, that's something I write about, right? Um, but, but I think, you know, one way is to create um, codes of conduct. Um, so, in the absence of regulation, you know, from, uh, from above, you know, companies can still band together and say, these are the codes of conduct that we will voluntarily follow um, because we think these are the high standards, these are, you know, the, the quality assurances we want for our industry. And then those con- codes of conduct, once the regulation starts, can then be like a template or, or a blueprint for the, you know, the concrete regulation. Um, but that's generally how things have happened, you know, in the past. Um, so regulation always kind of tends to lag behind innovation, um, which, you know, as, as we know, is not necessarily a good thing. Um, but that doesn't mean companies can not have a say in how their industry can, will then be regulated. And one way to create this is through this community of um, voluntarily following a code of conduct. Do companies use those code of conduct, though, typically as a way to avoid regulation? To say, um, we already do this, right, we don't right. need regulation. Um, I mean, that, that could happen, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm more curious, like, yeah. does that happen? Because yeah. I guess as we're talking about it, that sounds like a really like, reasonable, good thing right. to do. And I guess the question is, I feel like when you know, we hear about things like the Cambridge Analytica right. scandal or what have you, a, a common retort is, well, um, we already do, this is like an anomaly. We, we actually have already agreed to do things in this way. Right. So we don't need regulation. Right. I mean, I haven't seen that because, frankly, there's no code of conduct for platforms. <laughs> it just doesn't exist, right? There's no code of con- conduct for, like, say, hiring algorithms. Those things just don't exist. And I think they need to. In the absence of regulation, you know, companies can come together and really think through what is the good of society, right? Um, and coming up with those conducts. I haven't really necessarily seen them used as a shield, like you know, like you're saying. Um, but I think, if anything, when I've seen them, it's actually adding to the law. So the law says this baseline, and we're going to go even beyond that um, in our uh, community um, to ensure that we have a quality product for our consumers. Um, and I think that's a great thing. Yeah. And I think that is a way to sort of avoid this appearance of like regulatory capture or that one company is the one dictating regulation because then there's more of a consensus model to it. I think that that is a great note to end on and certainly some to-dos for me. So thanks for coming by. Thanks for, for being here. And again, looking forward to seeing uh, your book come out again just it's called the quantified worker it'll be out next year is it all done already almost almost okay so um yeah thanks so much for coming thank you very much for having me it was a pleasure